0: be here thanks so i was reading your well you said it wasn't a farewell letter but more like just kind of running through all the memories serving as editor-in-chief for advocate the longest running lgbtq magazine news magazine online uh magazine if you will in, in the i think in history um but mm-hmm. you're but you're resigning yeah
1: we got, moving on to the new thing but I'm- Loved working at the advocate. It was a dream job. I used to write letters starting in college, and no one ever applied, so it took a while to get here.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, there was something that you said that struck me, and it was about just remembering all the hard work and the good work that you've been doing, which is driving the organization to be more about LGBTQ principles versus LGBTQ people. What did you mean by that?
1: Um, It used to be when I first started, and I started here in 2011 uh, working at The Advocate, and it would be if you wrote something that didn't overtly have an LGBT person in it, then you'd hear from the commenters, right? They'd be like, why is The Advocate even covering this? Even if it was about feminism or any kind of protest that didn't include an overtly LGBT person, you would hear from people and say, The Advocate shouldn't be covering this. Why are you covering it? We get some other things on the other extreme where people would say, it doesn't matter that you're a queer person, why are you covering this story from a queer angle? But you would get it on the other extreme too. And over time, and especially with Donald Trump, it has helped clarify for people what really matters, right? And it has helped unify people in a way, in a terrible way, (laughs) but it has helped unify people so that they can see that well, we're kind of, at the, from the very least, we're intersectional in that we have a common adversary, right? Mm-hmm. We have someone, and have always had someone, but maybe now it's even clearer, but we've always had someone who is a common adversary, the right, who would demagogue people with racist views, xenophobic views, misogynistic views. And their goal has always been, in some ways, to divide and conquer. That we're, they're much more powerful when we are divided and don't recognize ourselves in each other. So what we tried to do is recognize LGBT people in essentially straight people. That when you're being told that, oh, it's the immigrant coming over who's the ruin of the economy, it sort of reminds me of being told that it's the gay person who has brought the hurricane or the earthquake. (laughs) And trust me, Mm -hmm. we've also been blamed for the fall of the economy. So uh, the fall of the very fabric of families, and all of society is blamed on, oh, these terrible people getting married, or whatever it might have been. Uh, So you can hear yourself if you listen to uh, what other people are saying.
0: Lucas, I did notice that The Advocate has been evolving over the last few years. I mean, even the website has made some significant changes with how it categorizes stories. And, And so I wanted to, you know, talk to you about just kind of, LGBTQ media in general and how it has evolved, I feel like when we talk about LGBTQ issues even five years ago is very much focused on marriage and like you said, you know actual LGBTQ people and now the advocate really talks about like some of uh, the issues that are trending but not just trending, it's intersectional as in other other eyeballs could be reading this, article as it impacts the LGBTQ community as well. Uh, kind of what are your thoughts on, on LGBTQ media evolution and, I mean, it, you know, some of these issues, it, the LGBTQ people have been at the forefront of every civil rights movement or equal rights movement, so it's not like a new thing for our community, but some people who might be new to, say, the LGBTQ equal rights movement might think that, oh, well, you know, what does hashtag what does Me Too have to do with LGBTQ people? Oh, gosh,
1: yeah. Well, and sometimes there's a really limited view of what it means to be intersectional to just say, well, there are issues of sexual harassment and sexual assault in the LGBT community, so then that means that Me Too is an intersectional issue. Well, of course, sure, there's going to be LGBT people everywhere you look. But when you really uh, delve deeper than that, you can say that Me Too is really about power and the abuse of power, right? That's at least one portion of what it's about. And... To be LGBT throughout our history has been to be without power in a lot of instances and to have that power used against us. So you could look back at, like, the Lavender Scare, for example, where, you know, it was an FBI was looking around and trying to find uh, if you happen to have any gay proclivities, you could be easily drummed out of uh, your job. And that could then be held against you. And uh, it was funny because part of the reason that they would say it could be held against Part of the reason they were going after you is because they said it could be held against you by a foreign government in that way, but then it was them holding it against you. Um, So these power structures have never favored marginalized people. And Me Too, in so many instances, is about someone who has the promise of power, the promise of being able to transfer some of that to you, uh, being abused to take advantage of you. And it's also, I mean, talk about the need for protections. Um, we certainly have come from a place where we needed more protection, and a threat of losing our jobs, or uh, threat of losing our livelihoods and reputations, and these are the same sort of threats that are made against people when they're being taken advantage of. Um, so, I, for me too, it's been something we've covered right from the start. We we had for a long time there, I guess it started probably, it was like October or November, I think, and we did for the first three or four months, we kept a running list of every single person who had lost their job because they had been, you know, uncovered and discovered, and we continue to report on it now um, because not only are there LGBT people at the forefront, when you look at the Cosby case, for example, Andrea Constant. Is a lesbian. She is the only case mm-hmm. that has gone to court against Bill Cosby, and that just is sort of the way it happens in a lot of places where you look around and you say, "Well, actually, Black Lives Matter was founded by, in part, these two queer Black women, and you know, DeRay McKesson is a very prominent member of Black Lives Matter movement and is a gay Black man, and you could look around in all kinds of areas where you're going to come across queer people, like you said, and you have her forever, going back to baird Rustin, But that, when it comes down to it, is just, of course that would happen because we have learned to speak this language. And what we need to do is teach ourselves to find other people who are speaking our language.
0: Exactly, exactly. I totally agree with you. There was something also interesting that you mentioned in your letter, which is, you know, now that uh, we're at we're at where we're at, what should the advocate be right now and you bring up the president uh, the LGBTQ community has always been a victim of these fear mongers and I believe that Donald Trump is the beast of them right now at this time and so you know just to, it, there's so many complex layers to it but but the president has attacked the media and continues to attack the media and anybody who's in the media, but for for you as editor in chief right now, and talking about what the advocate should be, and it should a part of it should absolutely ensure that we do our part to, um, I guess you know, not elevate the voices of these fair mongers. And in some ways, uh, we need to be we need to be village, vi- vigilant for election day. Can I elaborate on that? And you know, kind of how the media uh, also impacted. Um, how it was impacted by this president, how the advocate was impacted.
1: Mm-hmm. So in the farewell column, that's not really a farewell column, I shared that memo that we, I had written before Pride Month started in 2016, and it was a year after marriage equality, and it would turn out a couple months, a few months before Donald Trump would become president. And I could have imagined a time easily where the advocate really wouldn't have covered Donald Trump very much, or only when he mentioned LGBT people, which would be very infrequently. He didn't bring us up directly very much, and if he did, he tried to avoid saying anything or admitting anything negative about us, um, which fooled a lot of people, it turned out. Um, and I can imagine a time where the advocate really wouldn't have covered much of what Donald Trump was doing because it didn't, we didn't get like, name-checked in it. And that would be such an abdication of our responsibility now, not only as a magazine, but as LGBT people. To let Muslims be stopped at the airports and have said nothing or not joined in the protests uh, would have enshrined and let us sort of... We would have been complicit in discrimination that was happening overtly. And, you know, Trump and the rest of them tried to use Uh, tries to split us up. He he overtly tried to split us up after Pulse, for example. And he took Pulse, which was a dramatic hate crime against LGBT people, and then tried to use that for his own purposes to turn us against Muslim people by blaming uh, the shooter tying him to ISIS and then trying to say that, oh, all of Muslim people hate you. And he gave a lengthy speech afterward in which that was basically his only goal. Was to try to turn us against Muslims, because he's kind of long-term planning that mm-hmm. uh, he needs to divide up all these groups, and you know one day he's going to stop at the border and hope that the LGBT people aren't going to show up, but that's not what happened. There were LGBT people at those airports holding science, and then they were there at the Women's March, and then we were there at the March for Children, and the March for Science, all of them, because these are our shared principles that we are against discrimination, whether it's at the border or whether it's when you're trying to get a cake at the bakery, we're against discrimination and we're against demagoguery because we have been demagogued. We have been blamed for things that we have nothing to do with. Uh, And we're against shame and all of its many iterations Uh, and bullying, really. I mean, if there was ever a better example of bullying, it's Donald Trump, my God. So If you can't, even at that basic level, say, as LGBT people, we understand what it is to have been bullied, even if we are not the subject of the bullying, we should stand up because that's what we've always asked other people to do for us.
0: Right, right, right. You know, what's interesting is uh, reading your letter also brought me back, and I had a nostalgic moment for myself, which... Was the first time that I walked into, you know, a Barnes and Noble, and there was an Advocate magazine um, there to purchase with the rest of them, and and so my my question to you it got me thinking about now all these mainstream publications and websites are being inclusive of LGBTQ reporting, which is awesome. But you know, I mean, I just can't imagine a day or a moment in which we. We, we say to ourselves, we don't need an actual LGBTQ publication. What are your thoughts? I also am glad to see BuzzFeed have an LGBT section, and Vox has an identity section, and so does Mike, and Huffington
1: Post had the Queer Voices section. And that's great to see that we are seen as such a valuable audience by these giant media companies that they're going to start a section for us. Uh, and they're going to tweet those sections, just like they treat any other section of their website, is that this is a lucrative business for them, and they're going to hire LGBT people who are great people and great journalists, and they're going to do great work. Uh, but there's always going to be a difference, which is that the Advocate, when it was founded in 1967, you mentioned it's the longest running. The, the story of how it was founded is the story even today, in that there was a group of people on New Year's Eve, 1966, went to a bar in Los Angeles in Silver Lake neighborhood. And it was at that time, if you can believe it, against the law to kiss a person of the same sex for more than two seconds. So these undercover police officers went to the Black Cat Tavern where there was going to be a big New Year's Eve party and there was going to be a big lot of queer people there. And they went undercover and they waited until it was midnight when people would kiss. And then when they did kiss, they came out, they beat them, they chased them down the streets, they arrested them. And people at that point said, no, we've had enough. And they formed a group. A group had already been founded called Pride, Personal Rights and Defense and Education. That's where the name came from, Pride. And they had a newsletter. This was a newsletter for a protest movement. People needed to keep in touch. They needed to know what was going on so they could get things done. And that newsletter became The Advocate the It was, and then The Advocate Magazine. So we've always been a newsletter for a protest movement. And I think that protest movement has always been about civil rights. Then it was even more explicitly about standing up for yourself against police brutality and harassment, which, gosh, mm-hmm. if there's never been a clear tie into the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, it's that one. That's where we came from. Uh, the police were once upon a time named the, they uh, pick a phobie every year. They wouldn't crown the worst homophobes. And the police was top of the list. <laughs> uh, at right. the time it was. So we come from this idea that uh, you're fighting back, that you're doing something, and that you have this idea in media where there's a... One side, and then you got to put the other side on, is a false equivalency. It creates a false equivalency in which people turn into issues instead of human beings. And where we've felt this our entire lives, where let's have a debate now about whether it was marriage equality and whether or not you should be allowed to get married or we're going to have on the person who says you should and the person who says you shouldn't, as if there's really legitimately two sides to that issue. Because and as if then that person who you're talking about is really just a political issue in a number, uh, and it's never been that way. And that's what the advocate will always recognize, is that these are not issues. These are people, and these are our values and principles, and we come from a starting place of understanding what our values are and never treating it as if there's a legitimate other side
0: to that. Great point. That's such a great point. Um, I also had this one thought, and I thought you would be a great person to ask. And that is just kind of like you know, where LGBTQ activism is, I mentioned earlier that it was very clear in terms of what LGBTQ issues were a few years ago. And now that we're kind of in this chaotic moment politically, uh, many people also ask, you know, where, where, what, what is the LGBTQ movement right now with all this chaos? And uh, where are LGBTQ leaders? I mean, I, I think you have a really good eye on what's going on with a lot of things and it's evident if you go to advocate.com uh, because you're seeing just all these issues being talked about. So I kind of, you know, wanted to hear your thoughts. I feel like, the, you know, that question is, uh, we're everywhere if, if I were to answer it, but what do you think?
1: I totally agree with you on that, in that. One thing that we can take and learn from the LGBT movement for civil rights and maybe take for this moment, is that when you try to go back and look over our history, which is largely an ignored history, but for the people who lived through it, they try to look back and try to catalog it now, right? Especially now. And it's hard, because you we've had so many different people write a book, and someone gets left out of the book, or someone gets lionized more than another person, and it's Admittedly, very difficult because there was never a moment where it was just one voice who was leading the throngs, right? It's always been many voices over a long period of time. And while maybe to the outside world, it seemed it was a quick change. It has, it has not been a quick change. Uh, the magazine started in 1967 because something was already wrong by 1967. And so it, it predates even then. And Stonewall was in 1969, it was two years later. So... The important thing to remember from the LGBT movement is how many people played a role in getting to where we are now. And that that was actually its strength, is that there could be someone uh, in Los Angeles doing one thing and another person in San Francisco hearing about that and emulating it maybe from there and into New York. And that you would have uh, multiple leaders is an advantage. And I think that's where we are now. There isn't exactly, I mean, if you look around on TV, you say, well, who is in charge of all this? Who is marshalling this response to Donald Trump? And I'm sure at some point, people will rally behind a presidential candidate, but even then, that presidential candidate would need to draw upon the many figures who are making a difference all over the globe, and especially in the states. The way that these rallies happen, the way that the protests happen, is that it marvels me every time it happens that, oh, gosh, we're going to have, we've picked a date, and all of a sudden there are dozens, if not hundreds, of protests organized all over the country on that date. That's amazing, and that is our strength.
0: Thank you for that. Thank you for that. That gave me a an injection of unity that I needed for today, um, because sometimes it gets kind of, like, it's hard, especially with the LGBTQ community, and we're, we're forever evolving, and, you know, it, it doesn't always mean that we all always agree, which I think can be a good thing. Uh, Lucas, it's tradition on the show that we ask our guests to provide for us a coming out story. I feel like you're leaving the yeah. Advocate Um, but at the same time, you know, the advocate isn't everything because you're moving on, as you said in the beginning, to new projects. So, uh, we'd love to get to know you a little bit better before we let you go.
1: I had a, I mean, everyone has an interesting coming out story. I didn't come out until college and I was actually outed by my, one of my Uh. roommates in my dorm because I had been, uh, you're talking to the high school prom king, so just so you know. And I actually dated the high school prom queen, and we went to college together. And uh, she, this is a much longer story I won't get into, but she uh, knew that I was gay at some point under stressful circumstances, but we hadn't told anyone that, you know, we were not together anymore, because I was still trying to figure this out. But somebody uh, in my dorm got the idea that, oh, well, we had been lying in... We should be exposed uh, for whatever reason for being duplicitous or something. Uh, So he told everyone, (laughs) (laughs) which was very stressful, as you can imagine, as someone who grew up. I grew up in evangelical churches. My uncles are missionaries and uh, started their own churches. I went to their church. Um, So my journey to being able to say that I was a gay person came with a constant voice in my ear saying how bad that was. Um, So then to have been outed at that moment was obviously a great stressor. So what I did actually is I called a meeting. I had one of these unusual dorms where we were kind of a community you had to apply to get in. And so I called a dorm meeting and came out to the dorm. And I didn't necessarily call out the person who had been uh, outing me, but it was implied. So. It was a very empowering moment in the end, and it, it, I think it probably uh, shaped how I handle a lot of things now, is that it's to do it publicly a lot of times, right? right? And to get rid of all that shame that you had, which admittedly I did have. And I shouldn't make it sound at all easy because it wasn't, which was, I was certainly went through suicidal times around that. Um, and it was only because of my now very great best friend and former prom queen girlfriend, that I could actually make it through all that. And then the the support system that came even after I did come out to the dorm because I was welcomed. Um, And I was also welcomed by my immediate family. And my Nana walked me down the aisle uh, aisle at our wedding then in a church. So, you know, things did get much better.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it. So what's next? Uh, Family... You know, maybe growing your own, or... uh, That's just getting personal. But (laughs) people probably... uh, I'll have some
1: news soon on that, some news soon on that. But you can trust that what I'm going to be doing next is going to be an extension of what I've already been doing. uh, It goes back to this... I actually worked before I was at The Advocate at National Journal Magazine in Washington, D.C., and I always wanted to work in Washington because I thought I could get there, and as a journalist, I could write a story that would change people's minds on... Capitol Hill, and they would go off and do something with what I had written, and then I realized while I was there that things didn't quite work that way, that actually I was writing all these great ideas or whatever it might have been, insightful pieces, I'm sure, and that they would read that piece, both sides, and arm themselves to fight with each other over it, not to better themselves, to do something about it. And I realized that the media in Washington had turned it sort of into arms dealers, right, that You're just arming both sides for a war that's going to keep going. Mm -hmm. And the only way to fix that is to get out here to the rest of the people outside of that paywall, which costs thousands of dollars to get this information in Washington, by the way. But you've got to get outside of that paywall and talk to people and create movements. And those are the people who change Washington because Washington is listening to its voters. I guarantee you that every time. That is the one thing that is still lasting even as bad as our democracy might seem to be broken, those lawmakers really want to keep those jobs. So yeah, whatever I be, will be doing next, and there will be news on it soon, will be about helping to create those movements and move ideas from cities to Washington and help change the country.
0: Oh, that sounds so, so, so exciting. I can't wait to hear about it, and uh, I'm, I'll be looking. I'll be stalking you. Oh, Good. <laughs> Hey, Lucas, thank you so I welcome much. welcome this talking. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, in the most, you know, um, nonviolent way <laughs> and not what it actually means, but I will be on the lookout for sure. That sounds like a great, great thing. Thank you so much for joining us here on the program and spending some time. And it was great to just hear your vision, you know, of the, all this work that you've done and continue to do.
1: Well, thank you. And I'm just so appreciative for the time that I had at The Advocate. I loved every minute working for the people here and for all the readers.
0: Don't go away. We'll be right back.